Well, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but about eight years ago, whenever I finally decided to trust Google Maps, I was driving somewhere, and I needed to be on time, and I had started a little late. And at a critical point along the way, the voice from my phone said to take a left. She was adamant. But there was a problem. The road to the left, which I followed, ended abruptly at a riverbank where there was no bridge. I'd come to a complete dead end. There was no way I was going to get where I needed to go following Google Maps. Well, when Jesus arrives at the temple in Jerusalem and sees what is going on, he turns over the tables and shoes out the animals, he as much as says, this religious place is a dead end. All your expectations about finding God here in the ritual sacrifice is misplaced. It's over. Everything has all been so corrupted that God is building a new temple. It's the temple of my body. And by the way, he had planned to do this from the foundations of the world. There's a lot to unpack in what I just said, and actually I sort of stretched the paraphrase of what Jesus was saying in order to get the point across. But for us to understand this passage in the Gospel of John, we need to ask, what was the identity of the Jerusalem temple, the theology of it, its role in New Testament times? What was Jesus talking about when he speaks of the body of his temple, the body as, his temp as a temple? And there's also a question about when this incident actually took place in the life of Jesus, because the other Gospels have a similar interaction at the end of his ministry, as opposed to at the beginning, where we find it in the Gospel of John. And we'll spend some time with each of these questions. But as we dig into this passage, I want us to see it from the perspective of the dead end, from the place where hopes and aspirations have tumbled into chaos and corruption and no future. And the reason for this, first of all, is that is where this past year has brought many of us, even with the coming of vaccines. So many things, good things, that we had looked to and trusted in came unraveled. If we had put our trust in democratic process, we were certainly shaken. If we had put our trust in the simple graces of gathering together, we were deprived. If we had thought that our country had progressed significantly and adequately in racial justice, we were awakened. In more private realms, we may have experienced career opportunities dry up, or close relationships break under the great stress of a pandemic. If we had felt deeply assured and comforted by the leadership of our faithful rector of 14 years, Lee Spruill, we experienced a great loss, even if we recognize rationally that such things must happen. 
So first, I want us to acknowledge our familiarity with dead ends. And I want us to use this perspective as we investigate this passage. And secondly, what the Gospel of John tells us plainly is that counter to all expectations, it is at the dead end that God faithfully meets us. The cross itself is the greatest of all dead ends. And the cross is where God meets us in his son Jesus. So with dead ends as our framework and the expectation that we will find God there in that place, we turn to the questions presented in our text. Let's address the question about when this happened in the life of Jesus. The other gospels tell about Jesus cleansing the temple right before he is arrested. In fact, it's sort of the cause of his arrest instead of at the beginning of his ministry, which we have in the Gospel of John. Now, it is possible that this incident occurred twice in two different times of Jesus' ministry. That's one possibility. It is also possible that John placed this event in the beginning for literary stylistic purposes. Biographies written at that time were not as concerned with precise chronology as are our contemporary biographies. They sometimes arranged material by theme rather than time. Actually, some biographers do that today, actually. Chronology not being the preeminent uh, schema. And if that was so, then, Jesus, then John would be emphasizing Jesus coming to Jerusalem early in the context of the Passover as a sort of frame to his whole ministry. He comes in chapter 2 to cleanse the temple with a whip, and he will come again in chapter 12 to cleanse the world with his body. What was the role of the temple originally? Well, the temple was the place where God dwelt with his chosen people, uniquely. The temple wasn't just a corner church. It was the epicenter of God's being with his people. We remember early when God made a covenant with Israel through Moses, there were two stone tablets with stipulations written on them. And contrary to some illustrations, which sort of depict five of them all written on one, and then, oh, God sort of ran out of room, so then he wrote on a different tablet, it is much more likely that all the commands were written on both. Just like when you sign a contract the two parties each retain a copy. Only in the case of the tablets, God's copy, along with Israel's copy, were kept together in the Ark of the Covenant. That piece of furniture became a physical signifier of God's presence among his people. And some scholars say that it was designed in the shape of a sort of royal footstool. You can look in archaeological things and find things that look like the Ark of the Covenant that look like a royal footstool. A footstool for the Lord. There he was, the heavenly God reaching down and touching the earth with his foot in that place. And then God instructed the Israelites to build a tent around the Ark, and it was called the Tabernacle. 
You can visit a scale replica of the tabernacle in Lancaster, PA, and Richard and I did that on our drive down from Massachusetts when we first moved to Tennessee. The tabernacle was architecturally designed to symbolize a mini cosmos. Planets, waters, the earth, and trees were all represented visually. And there in the midst of the cosmos was God's word those tablets. The theology behind it was that God wished to dwell with us on the earth in his word. And while there had been a bit of a hiccup in the Garden of Eden, resulting in Adam and Eve being thrown out of God's presence in the garden, he actually followed them out and was reestablishing his kingdom rule through a family and a covenantal promise. All this detail to explain that when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the permanent form of the tabernacle, it was the place where God would dwell on earth with his people. And the temple was the spiritual center of Israel. It is where heaven and earth met. One of the prominent features of the temple was an elaborate sacrificial system. This had been established as a means of covering and atoning for the sins that the people committed. And we read in Hebrews that this whole ritual was a foreshadowing of the real way that God would establish lasting peace through Jesus, who would take on the role of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, in addition to being the spiritual center of Israel, the temple had also become a national symbol and, of course, a center of economic activity. Regarding national identity, there were zealots congregating on temple grounds, people plotting to restore a free Israel through acts of terrorism. Jesus has some words for them and their violent approach. And regarding economic activity, we are told in this passage that there were merchants taking advantage of pilgrims who came to buy offerings for temporal sacrifices. Jesus enters this place and he calls it a spiritual dead end. Later, he will tell his disciples that it will be utterly demolished and not one stone will be left on another a prophecy which came true in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. It's critical to remember that Jesus was a Jew. He had come for the Passover feast. He was not anti-Semitic. He was Jewish. He had come for his people the people of the promise, and part of his mission was to cleanse the religious system that had gone awry. And I would add here that subsequently, God has sent his Holy Spirit on many occasions to cleanse the Christian church as well. Well, it was an unwelcome message. Unwelcome because, well, there was much of value in the temple. It was beautiful. It was historic, and while the structure from Jesus' day had been essentially completely 
rebuilt by Herod, it was in the same location as Solomon's temple. And while there was corruption, there had been much godly devotion. We read the passage about Simeon and Anna, these godly folk who had seen Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus and spoke prophetically, recognizing that this little baby was the Messiah. So there was good and there was bad. And ironically, God had not abandoned the temple. He returned to the temple in the person of Jesus. Heaven and earth met in the body of Jesus. He was standing in that temple, the place that had become a dead-end religious place. In some ways, uh, religion comes to an end in Christ. Religion as the practice of us constructing, reconnecting from our end to God. It comes to an end. Why? Because... God did the work for us in Jesus. It went the other way around. So, this is really important. Because under all human sinfulness is a presumption that we can attain to holiness, to godlikeness, through our striving, on our own. If we eat the apple, we'll be like God. If we get our politics right, we will be like God and perfect the world. Out of the Enlightenment came that notion that if we would only behave rationally, we would become like God. But that is a naive assumption. Think of the logic behind the Third Reich or the deadly rationality of slave codes. And what the Bible shows us is that these aspirations, these Google Maps to perfection, come to dead ends. But what it also tells us is that God meets us there on the cross. There's an interesting volume called Modern Canterbury Pilgrims. It's a collection of testimonies from various intellectual types who are drawn from atheism, Judaism, and Catholicism into our beloved Episcopal Church. One of the essays is by Donald Schlesinger, a Jewish analytic psychologist who eventually served at the Chicago Law School. He describes a spiritual journey in which his desire to do good, without the inconvenience of believing in God, eventually brought him face to face with God on the cross. This is what he says. I can see now what I could not see then. Why a godless religion, crowned with apparent success, had to end in failure. Like every insatiable neurotic, I was climbing furiously up a treadmill ladder. Time and time again, I offered myself as top man on some totem pole. The world was to be saved by a summer camp or a university that would lead the blind to new heights. Always there was a corrosive vanity eating away at the foundations. There were good works all right, but I was doing them. 
he realized that he was not so much doing good work for its own sake as he was making himself into the ultimate do-gooder. And that was a restless, merciless, and unsatisfying project. He needed something more worthy of worship than himself and his good deeds. But God met him in that dead end. Our sermon series this Lent is Daring to Draw Near. The reason we dare to draw near is that God is so humble, he comes to meet us on the cross that we have made. He comes to be with us in the dead ends of our lives. What other God does that? And the thing is, he doesn't just come there to be with us. He does come to be with us, but that's not the end. He comes there to make all things new. He comes there to the dead end of your life to renew you. He comes there into Israel to the dead end of that temple ultimately to bring new life to his people. I want to close uh, with a wonderful verse from uh, Bonner. We've been listening to our Lenten hymns and this has stirred a new love of these wonderful lyrics for me. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, O weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad.